And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi for Me Radio is live from the bunker. Happy Friday music more than it is, uh, what is today, Decent Wednesday? I don't have nicknames for the days yet. We're working on that. Jason Hutt here in the studio, live from the bunker. We are midweek. We have one more to go this week for this program. I don't have a guest lined up for tomorrow yet. Any suggestions? Send us an email. Speaking of which, I'm looking through here. We have feedback from uh, yesterday's show. find it. All right, here we go. This is from Ricky about uh, yesterday's uh, yesterday's interview with Mercedes Lackey. He says, great interview. Uh, watch part of your interview with Mercedes Lackey. Had to quit midway because of a commitment, but I watched the whole thing later on playback. I took the whole thing she said about writing to heart. A recent episode of H2O got me back to writing after putting it aside because of other things that distracted me right now, just doing for my own pleasure and getting into a regular routine. I'd call that a win. I'd say that's a, that's a, that's a very gratifying uh, thing to hear. Uh, Ricky, thanks very much uh, for sharing with that, and good luck and have fun uh, with, the, with the stuff that you are uh, writing, uh, even if it's just for your own pleasure, and this is something that I talked about when I was on uh, I was on Peter Samitty's stream Monday night. We we took the day off for H two O, and there's reasons for that that will be made clearer a little bit later on in the year. But um, uh, I w- I had the chance to go on on Peter Samitty's live stream, and he he asked me because I don't have uh, let me turn that off. I don't have a comic book to promote, uh, which is usually what he's looking for on his open mic nights. But since we have interviewed a number of creators that are publishing titles over at Alterna, I thought it was a good opportunity for me to t- talk about our interview with uh, Robert Geronimo and Clint Stoker. We've talked to, to them. We've talked to, to Keith Gleason, uh, and we've interviewed Peter. He's been on this show. So... Uh, Peter had asked me uh, if I had advice for anybody who was just getting started in all of this, getting started with a YouTube channel, getting started with a book. And my main, my main takeaway is uh, a couple of things. And one, one I neglected to say the other night, uh, but don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. Uh, perfect is always the enemy of good. And in, if, if it has to be perfect before you let it fly, you will never get it done. Um, George Lucas said one time, he said, movies are never finished, they're abandoned. And I think there's some truth to that, especially across the board. You always have these projects that don't always, they don't just, they're not quite finished. But you still got to let them out there loose to the public for for review and response and feedback, and then you can massage it. Then you can change it. Then you can you can update, or you incorporate that feedback into your next thing, and you get better. So even if you're doing it just for fun, let people see it. Don't be afraid to show your work to other people. Don't be afraid to show your art. Don't be afraid to show your stories, because you just might surprise yourself and somebody out there might surprise you with an opportunity. You never know. Don't, don't, uh, don't neglect the possibility uh, that you can create an opportunity for yourself. And the only way that you can do that is by letting people know that you've done stuff. So even if you're doing it for fun, that's great. Uh, but uh, 
you should you should let people know. You should you should show your show your passion to, uh, to other people. Uh, uh, share that uh, with your friends and your neighbors and your family, and and uh, let them know that this is something that you really really like to do. And for those of you who are doing it professionally, get yourselves a decent headshot. My goodness, I. So in the course of the work that we do here, I have occasion to put together whenever we do articles over at sci-fi for me.com, we do we I do little thumbnail headshots for, you know, actors and writers and producers and directors so you can so you can get an idea who we're talking about. So Zendaya, John Boyega, uh, 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 Ridley Scott, you know, JJ Abrams, those kind of things. We have these little we little corner box type things where we show their headshot and we get their name across the bottom. So you know who it is we're talking about. Some of you do not have decent headshots. Take the time. Get yourself a good set of photographs that you can use in your publicity. Authors, especially, because I know you're not used to being on camera. And it's not something you think about, but you got to have a picture. You got to have a picture. I have a picture, and I'm not even really, I would, I'm not what you would consider a serious author. Um, RJ in the in the chat, welcome. Uh, yes, uh, second, second Jasper 211, whosoever tooteth not his own horn, the same also shall therefore goeth untooted. I like that. I may have to, I may have to print that one out. Robert in the chat, uh, where can you buy a copy of my book? It is available through Amazon, uh, I think it's also available over at Barnes and Noble still, um, but it's available as a Kindle and a print-on-demand. It is called "The Hero at the End of His Rope," and uh, you can find it over there. The Kindle edition, I think, is like a dollar ninety-nine. So, uh, so there's that. And as far as the uh, the the movie that Tim and I did, the Statement of Randolph Carter, it is it is not. I don't think it's out available yet here's what we ran into with that i'll get into this and then and then we'll take a break we'll come back with stephen mitchell um what i ran into with it there's the link thank you mrs boss uh we had some issues with the effects at the end of the movie there is a there's a reveal and we're doing it we're doing it old school because the movie is set in the 19 teens and we're st we're staying there um so the the production uh is geared toward making it look like it was made at that time which means we're not doing we're not doing cg it's it, there's a lot of practical effects but there is a there is a cg element to the last bit at the end and we ran into a problem. We were doing, uh, uh, we were doing the effect. We were putting all the mix together, and uh, the the first person that was doing the effects work on that last shot passed away, and then the material ended up in the hands of somebody else, and he got too busy, and so now it's in the hands of a third person who's working on other projects. So it's basically kind of you know we get to it when we get to it type of thing. It is finished and edited except for that last piece. So one of these days, we'll get around to it. So um, RJ, I'm not sure what your question is about the, about the statement. Um, oh, 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 statement of Randolph Carter. No, huh. I see what you did there. I see what you did there. All right. I, I have only had a couple of cups of coffee this morning, so I'm not quite up to speed. Uh, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a real quick break. We are going to uh, play back a recorded interview. I'm going to monitor the, the live chat, uh, but there is not, uh, we won't have the live chat available uh, during the call because uh, uh, we had to record our conversation with Stephen Mitchell. So uh, thank you, Robert. Uh, Robert said he just bought the book. So that's one this year. <laughs> All right, when we come back, uh, conversation with Stephen J. Mitchell. 
Stand by. And it's a real pleasure for me as a longtime fan to be sitting here with Aaron Gray. Here with Larry Hama. We're talking with Kevin J. Anderson, best-selling author. Mr. Neil Adams. I am here with David Fritz. Axel Alonzo, editor Fan Days at and Dallas Comic-Con with uh, John Delancey. With Tom King. Kevin Conroy. Free Denise Crosby. Popcon Pop McKenna Talley here on location at Star Wars We're Celebration. We're talking, talking for our second time with Neil Gerard. Wichita, Kansas at Time Eddie. David Gerald. Yeah, I've got Eric Flint. are here at Smallville Comic-Con. Wizard World St. Louis. GlitchCon in Bentonville, Arkansas. WorldCon 74. We are talking with uh, Alan Dean Foster. We are talking... Father Charlene Harris. Quincy Allen. Suzanne Lampin. Chris Sami. Ashley Eckstein. Mano Interrami. Jason Aaron. This is Sci-Fi for Me. Your portal to the science fiction multiverse. studio today talking with author Stephen J. Mitchell because I keep apparently getting that wrong and I don't know why. Hello sir, welcome. How are you? Doing good, doing good, thank you. Yeah, I, there's uh, there's actually another another guy who wrote a book out there that shares the same name but you know it's it's easy to get confused. <laughs> now I uh, well and and for whatever reason I guess maybe I have in my head Stephen J. Cannell who who you know created so many different TV shows and w- when I see Stephen J. It just you know it's just one of those things where I'm like well that's not that's not his name so I apologize because <laughs> I got it wrong in the review and uh, yeah like, oh, okay so uh, but that's, yeah we caught it. In- it like, I actually I actually thought about taking like a pen name uh, but like I I think I overthought it. I kept trying to come up with something clever, catchy, and then I'm like, you know what? I just it's me. I just want to be me. <laughs> Now, is that because this is your first? This is your first novel. You, how much writing have you done before the prior to this? Um, I've written a lot for uh, online publications, and I uh, was included in two anthologies um, that promote more or promote the creation of more female superheroes. Um, and the first anthology, I actually. Uh, one first place for my submission. Uh, so I got top billing in the anthology and mine's the first story in there. So I've been published previously, but this is my first standalone novel. And the book, I'll show this in front of people. It is called Bulletproof Origins. And it is uh, about a teenager uh, named Cody Haywood who learn, who discovers that he is bulletproof and indestructible and... Uh, I did a review earlier. It's posted over at sci-fi for me.com. And the one biggest, uh, the, I guess the biggest takeaway for me on this, aside from the fact that it's written for a younger audience, I am, I'm clearly not the primary demographic for this, but the, the prologue, the, the setup little piece, I got to read as I'm, as I'm reading through this and I'm going through, I'm thinking, you know, that prologue just doesn't even need to be there. And, and, you know, your, your process for deciding what goes into a story and what doesn't, uh, I'd like to explore that a little bit because you haven't, you have an editor, you have a publisher. This is not a self-published thing. How many, Mm -hmm. how many drafts did this go through, uh, before it was ready to go and, and we go to print? Um, I probably couldn't count the number of drafts. Uh, that's not to say that um, there, there were a lot of specific things that my editor really zoned in on. And he and I had a lot of back and forth about what should stay, what should go, um, and what should be expanded on. Uh, there were a couple instances where he said, I, give, me, give me more on this. So I would have to kind of expand, but from my own personal feeling like I didn't want to expand too much. I felt providing too much detail for my target audience was just going to be distracting and uh, prevent the story from getting told and getting told quickly. Uh, 
as far as the prologue goes, we probably didn't, to your point, we probably didn't need to have it in there, but I really wanted to provide that background. And if the target audience is anything like how I was when I was a kid, I often skipped the prologue. <laughs> I just wanted to get to the meat of the story. Sure. So that prologue there is kind of like a little bonus thing that if you had the energy or desire to read it, you really kind of got a lot of background into it. Um, but there was never any, I don't think that was ever in question as to whether or not to keep it or leave it out. It was just there. Now the, the, you mentioned you know, being like that as a kid, and and I I look at Cody, your your protagonist here, and I recognize him. Uh, he's he reminds me very much of my son, and the nowadays you know you talk about you know there's there's a lot of discussion, there's a lot of back and forth about representation and in terms of gender and race, but I think also there's room for representation in terms of mental health and emotional health. And you've got a kid here who is not perfect. He's not the star athlete. He's not the, the a, the straight a student who's going to be valedictorian when he, when he graduates, he's a normal kid and he's easily distracted and he's one of these look out the window types. And you know, the rabbit hole is, is deep he reminds me of a number of people that I've that I've interacted with over the years. Is that is that something that you felt was important to be part of this character? Or is this like you say, you you were kind of like this? Is this, is Cody a self insert for you? Is, is Cody you or you're have you done research on this personality type to put him in? I've got a lot of experience with this personality type. First, first-hand experience from the, when I was a kid, I was very much a daydreamer. My mind wandered. Um, and then my younger brother uh, and uh, some other people that I know have experiences where, you know, maybe they just zone out or they're in their own world or they just kind of that like you mentioned, the rabbit hole mentality where just one thought leads to another. Um, and it just kind of gave me a little bit of a chill to hear you talking about that, the fact that you called that out, because that is exactly 100% the point of that character. I really wanted to hone in on that type of uh, individual that struggles through everyday life, but often gets maybe ridiculed or misunderstood because the, what you're, he's dealing with in this book, it, it's very real. It's very real. And somebody could easily just not believe any of the things that he's saying. Even if he did walk up to someone and said, hey, I'm bulletproof, they'd probably just dismiss him as being imaginary. Right. Now, is is that, um, as far as you know, the the depiction of Cody in this with the daydreaming and, and, and that, and you mentioned your brother, did you do any other, uh, research into, uh, that, or was this all just drawn from your personal experience? Was there, did you, did you consult with mental health professionals or do it, you know, a Google search or anything like that? What kind of prep went into making Cody, uh, fit this mold? This is 100% my personal experience with that personality type. Um, I could have probably done research to kind of like expand on it, but I really felt that that would have been disingenuous because I didn't want to take that extra knowledge and transfer it like that medical terminology or that knowledge and transfer it to the page and have it feel forced. I really wanted to keep it to my own experience so it felt very natural and organic as we followed him through this story. And the, the flip side of that, and I guess this is probably my biggest quibble of the book, is the, the, the Gene character, his best friend, the 12-year-old boy genius who's got his own secret lair. And I, the, first, the first thing that came to mind was in, um, in Spider-Man Homecoming, when Ned was like, let me be, let me be your guy in the chair. Let me be the guy in the chair. 
And it reminds me so much of, you know, you look at so many of the superhero TV shows now where you have the superhero, you know, like Flash or Supergirl or Green Arrow, and there's a team around them. There's somebody in the computer and there's somebody in you know, at home base, you know, Arrow's got Felicity and the Flash has, has, uh, um, uh, oh, Cisco. I don't know why I just blanked on his name, but everybody's got that one guy, right? You know, it's a trope. It's a trope. And I'm, I'm reading this and I'm looking at Gene. I was like, well, he's Wade from Kim Possible. You know, he's that kid who's the genius who can do anything. And I think it didn't really annoy me so much, but the, the amount of skill that he has at his age almost blew me out of the book. It almost was too unbelievable compared to the rest of how you set everything up. Was that on purpose that we've got to have this trope in here because we're writing for teens and the teens are going to expect that man in the chair character? Or did it just did it just evolve organically that Gene became this kind of kid that's the boy genius and he's got an unlimited credit card and of course he's got an underground lair. Yeah, uh, if if he feels extremely exaggerated and out of place, it's because it's designed that way. Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, yes, people are expecting to have that trope, especially the teens that are growing up in the Marvel Universe generation. Like these kids are growing up with knowing about like they don't they'll sit through a movie and they won't question. They'll just be like, okay, that makes sense. I mean, there's a guy who can walk up walls. So having this guy who's a super genius, I don't even have to question it. He just belongs there. And in my book, Gene, if he feels out of place, it's, it's meant to be, and it's supposed to make you feel like, wait, there's just something not right here. That's, kind of the whole idea and when i read your review i was like really like nodding my head and i'm like okay okay he got it but then i started to think to myself maybe i need to push his narrative a little faster in book two because i don't think people have the patience to sit around and just kind of let that continue to develop so there's definitely something behind the scenes brewing there and the fact that he felt very out of place that was the nugget that was the teaser okay so there's so there's more to gene than meets the eye then yes good to know so it's not just me (laughs) it's just like okay (laughs) this just feels because there's so much the rest of it is realistic enough in its setting that you know with with all of you know with the environment and and the other characters around him that are not exaggerated to the point of you know, this being a Kim Possible episode, Gene just was that nail that sticks up further than anything else. And I'm like, okay, he's he's begging for a hammer here. There's got to be something behind this. So uh, so that's good to know. But yeah, but then that goes back. You know, you 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 introduce uh, Gray as a character in the middle of this, and he's mm-hmm. got a history with Cody. He knows Cody, but Cody doesn't know who he is. And I think. If the if the prologue had been taken out, uh, that that probably to me would have been a little bit more of a mystery who this guy is, uh, because at the you know the reveal at the end, I'm thinking, well, okay, well, of course he is, of course that's who right. that, who that is. Uh, mm-hmm. I think, and I I'm curious to see how that plays out for the second book. Uh, but now the editorial process, when you guys, you know, you've got your manuscript and you're going through how, I don't want to say how painful was it, but this is your first novel. This is your baby. You've probably, I don't know how long you've been sitting on this story that you've got brewing in your head. How difficult was it for you as an author hearing you know getting the notes from editorial saying okay this needs to change this needs to come out you need to you need to massage this a little bit was it a painful process for you or did you see it as okay well this is just a necessary step there were there were parts that um that i really struggled with uh certain aspects i clung to like it was my child like i was not going to let go of it and you know there's a there's a sequence of events, and I'm sure you'll probably remember this, 
where there's a fight sequence and then he gets swooped up by his brother and then another fight sequence. And, you know, it's just one thing that comes after another one thing and then a reveal. And it's like, my editor was like, what is happening here? Like, he's not going to stop and question any of it. And that's when I really had to get into the personality type with Cody and say, uh, look, this is a kid who works best when it's, everything is chaos because yeah. he's able to kind of like move from one thing to the next. And I equated it to like following a trail of Reese's pieces. And there's a, suddenly a skittle there. He's not going to question it. He's just going to pick it up and keep going. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's kind of like, that was like the biggest, uh, the biggest battle that I had with my editor because I was not going to let go of that sequence. It's funny you um, should mention that because my kid being the same kind of type, if he was following a trail of Reese's Pieces and found a Skittle, he would probably obsess for three days on why the Skittle was there. Is it is it an accident? Is it a mistake? Is it deliberate? Is it meant to throw me off? What does this mean? Does it what does it mean that it's a red skittle and not a blue skittle? Hold on, it does it, you know, it's the it's the six hundred and seventieth piece in the trail, but it's a skittle. What does that mean? And and like you say, for that for Cody to just kind of weave through the various different events, to me, yeah, I think I think if he had because that's another distraction. Why is this happening? And and the obsession on, well, why did my brother do this? What is this guy talking about? Why is that? Why is there so much interest? I can see where your editor would sit there and say, "We need more here," mm-hmm. because yeah. that that personality type that Cody is, and and I'm sure there's a lot of ADHD. I see a lot of ADHD type of of thing. Maybe a little autism spectrum. And, you know, my kid going through that same kind of thing, his first his first reaction would be to find that one little tiny nugget and he'd be on that little tiny nugget for for days. Yeah. So, and depending on like where you land on the spectrum, it, like it could cause somebody to shut down, yeah. um, you know, and I could very easily have taken Cody in that direction where like. Wait, wait, no, 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 I need to process. I cannot do anything else. I need to focus, like, I need to figure this out. But I felt for his personality type and the way he is, um, keeping things moving was the best way for him to uh, really stay focused. And it'll allow me to set up for future events where I don't have to have him worry about shutting down maybe in a, during a very important sequence. Um, this would just allow him to expand on that later. And people will be like, yeah, that's exactly him. This makes sense. And if he wasn't that way, then everything would fall apart because his ability to just adjust and keep moving without questioning enabled him to stop this or save him. So uh, that was, that was like the big thing that I really clung to during the editorial process. Now, is that going to be something that becomes an issue later, perhaps where, you know, we're setting up that he just goes from one, one thing to the next, to the next is, is there something coming maybe in book two where he's going to hit that wall and how he manages to navigate and maneuver through things ends up, being a liability uh, and a weakness at some point is, are we setting up for that perhaps? Yeah. Dealing with a character who is, uh, who lacks all the other tools that typical heroes have with the exception of being bulletproof or indestructible for more common term. um, People are going to have to be creative with how they can get to him. And in the book, there is, you know, foreshadowing several different instances of him not being able to function, whether he can't breathe, um, he's underwater, um, but the ability to manipulate his thinking process is going to be a way for people to get to him because there will be moments that he's going to, again, not question, just go with it. And once a certain, once a certain individual picks up on this, they're really going to be able to uh, kind of control him. Now, is that, we talk about foreshadowing, 
and this being the first first book and I'm assuming a series that you've got laid mm-hmm. out how yep. far how far ahead have you mapped this out and and is it a detailed plan or is it just here's the spine of it and we go where the story goes or do you have this thing meticulously you know planned out to the nth degree for the next 5 books or so okay so the best way i to answer the first part of that question, I've got about six books mapped out. Whether we get past book three, um, that's a huge, uh, d- something that's still to be determined as far as like the publishing, how well received it is. Maybe I, you know, maybe I decide to, you know, hit the pause button and expand on the universe by going in another direction. But for Cody's story, I've got six books mapped out. Now, the best way to describe how I have that done have you, have you ever gotten into a conversation with somebody about WWE wrestling and people say, oh, it's scripted. And then there's the argument. It's like, no, 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 it's not scripted. It's, it's like they know the outcome, but they don't know how they're going to get there yet. Right. That's pretty much where I'm like, I know the outcome. I know there's, there's certain things, there's certain story beats that I already have down, but the, the path there hasn't been scripted yet. And I think that that's very important because with the way this character moves, I feel it's best to kind of let the story develop organically. As long as I have those, those fixated points, those fixated story elements that I need to get him to now it's a matter of getting him there. And how much of the world building are you having to do with uh, with the environment around him? Because we're not we're not on another planet. We're not in the future. Uh, we're not in the past. So you're able to just kind of do any town USA of sorts. Mm-hmm. Is that an important piece of this, or is that just this is just the background setting, and it doesn't really matter where he lives? just that we have you know we have a school we have a bank we have you know the the uh, docks you just have this convenient you know the the setting is there for the purpose of the story or is the world building going to factor into this at some point does it matter where this takes place um the it does matter uh and I probably could have done a lot more research and maybe found some place on our world map within uh, our country that resembles most like what I was looking for in a city. But I felt it was easiest for me to just build it from the ground up. And it's very important. The docks are very important to me to have there. Um, The structure of a city that's too big for its britches is definitely an important factor. But having a suburb like Bannerville is also important to have. Um, so I felt like all these elements I, were, were very uh, vital to the telling of this story. So, yes, I built from the ground up. I've studied, you know, I studied city maps just to kind of get some geographical inspiration and how cities are put together. And I've, I've actually sketched out a few samples of, important parts of where the story takes place just so I could have a feel for like how Cody's navigating because his mode of transportation is, is essential to being able to know where the buildings are. And have you, you know, you've, you've sketched out different places at some point, are we going to see a map of Bannerville just to, to orient ourselves? So we have a, a point of reference here as far as, Here's where the school is. Here's where, here's where Cody lives. Here's where Jean lives. Here's where Callie lives. Here are the docks. Here's you know all all of the different bits and pieces of this of this city of Cody's environment. Are we going to to see that anytime soon? I would I would love to do that. Um, it's certainly something that's crossed my mind. Uh, I am not quite the artist that my cover artist Matt Flint is, <laughs> and uh, I may I may you know talk with him and maybe we can kind of collaborate with it and see if we can get a map designed and inserted in uh book two or maybe even book three depending on how quickly we move um but 
yeah, just it's it's very important. And but I just I don't have the mean. If you saw my sketches, you'd totally understand what I'm saying. <laughs> it's pretty bad, uh, but uh, it's definitely it's definitely something that I've thought about. Now, how did you find Critical Blast as a publisher? What was that process like? Um, this is this goes back a while ago. There was an old um, an old pop culture website, and they were looking for freelance writers. And this was early on in my days of writing. And I was like, "Yeah, let's give it a shot. Let me let me see about throwing out a, a sample article." And I wrote a I wrote a review of an episode of Finding Bigfoot, and it wasn't too long after that, if I recall, the website shut down, and the one of the gentlemen that was running the website basically got handed off to everything, so he started up his own website, Critical Blast, and he reached out to me and asked if I wanted to write for it, so I did. I've written quite a few things for criticalblast.com, and he started slowly evolving and wanted to branch out his brand into publishing. And he started with an anthology. And as we were talking, I had mentioned that I had a story that I've been working on and someday maybe I'd like, you know, we can get it in print. And he's like, well, hello, I'm working on branching out into publishing. Send me the script, you know? So I, I felt weird doing it cause I, I didn't want to backdoor it in such a way. Um, but I had pitched my story uh, to multiple agents, um, hoping that somebody would be interested in it because I know a lot of publishing houses won't take unsolicited. So first you got to get an agent, then the agent has to find somebody, a publisher. So I kind of felt guilty that I was backdooring it, but in the same light, I was at the point where if I can get this published and he's going to help me do it and we can kind of work together to build this brand, then that's great. You know, so this is actually the first standalone novel from Critical Blast Publishing. Uh, and since then, um, they've, they've got two and uh, two anthologies out. Now, is this uh, is this part of the process for getting membership in say you know science fiction and fantasy writers of america or anything like that have you have you thought about those steps uh toward i for lack of a better word legitimacy because there are there are professional organizations uh in the science fiction realm that uh will take only published writers. You have to be published a certain number of times, a certain number of stories. Are you, are you, do you have an eye kind of sideways toward membership in some of these organizations or does that matter to you? Um, I think someday that would be something I'd, I'd be interested in, but I haven't really considered that right now. Um, right now, I'm, my focus is mostly on telling this story and getting this out here and, you know, and if I can entertain a few people, then I'm, I'm happy with it. Uh, anything outside of like my immediate friends and family, I always said that if I can make one person read this book and be entertained, then I'm happy. Uh, it doesn't even have to be like, completely out there that I don't even know. I just, I just. Well, I have a story to tell and I want to tell it. And so I haven't really thought too far down the line. I'm not looking at this as like, Hey, you know, here comes the next Stephen King. Uh, but, or, you know, I don't pick any, uh, Orson Scott card, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter to me. I just had a story to tell. I'm excited to tell it. And I haven't thought that far down the line yet. Now you mentioned Orson Scott card. Um, there are, there are people who look at his stories and look at him and say, uh, no thanks, we're, we're done with Orson Scott Card. Do you anticipate at some point in your career, uh, because we, we see the cancel culture being a thing right now, uh, George R.R. R. Martin has, has gotten criticized lately for his, um, l let, let's say, a lack of professionalism, uh, when it comes to the Worldcom presentation, I mean, certainly, I don't think that he had any malevolence intended in in his performances. Probably just laziness more than anything else. But um, 
do you anticipate a time where you pop up on the radar a little bit more visibly and maybe draw some criticism because any any particular set of beliefs are you prepared for that or does that does that factor into anything that you want to do um it doesn't bother me i i'm not i'm not too concerned about it if somebody feels like they want to you know dig something up that maybe i said 15 20 years ago and feel like oh we need to cancel him right now um at this stage in my writing career if I could project in 10 years, I would be so important that somebody would start a social media campaign to cancel me. I'd say I'm doing pretty good. (laughs) Um, But I don't, I don't really worry about it too much. And as I'm sure, you know, from reading the book, there's a scene in there that I really thought it was going to get draw attention to me. Like that would be it. Um, Especially in the time that we're in. And I would say with the fair number of sales that I've gotten, nobody's attacked me. I haven't seen anything uh, negative towards it. Almost like it didn't even happen. And I wonder if like a tree fell in a forest. (laughs) Well, and, and, you know, I, I am not one of those who believes uh, bad, bad publicity is, is good publicity. You know, if, if there are those things, you know, you have those criticisms uh, it does have a tendency to to have a negative impact in some cases. So the fact that you haven't uh, gotten any blowback on anything that's a good thing. I'll, that's that's certainly uh, something to be envied from from some people. Um, do you have uh, any ideas outside of the YA space? Because really, uh, in in YA. Uh, and we've seen this, you know, in terms of the cancel culture, there's certain there are certain people that are out there saying, well, you can't write this because you're not part of that group. Uh, and you mentioned having having some experience and, you know, being this, like this kind of character, having a, having relatives. And so that gives you the personal connection. Do you have other stories that you want to tell in the YA space? Do you want to stay there or do you have ideas for uh, regular, for lack of a better term, grown-up adult novel, it science fiction fantasy. You want to stay in science fiction? You want to expand to fantasy? What's what? What are some of the other things that you want to do with this? I I love the fantasy genre, um, and that's like I'll equate it to like Superman being my favorite character. Everybody's always said, "Oh, do you think you'd ever want to write Superman?" I'm a fan of Superman. I don't want him to become work for me. <laughs> I want to, I want to enjoy everybody else's stories. Could I throw something together? Maybe, but then I would know what's going to happen. So like with fantasy, I do have one. Well, I suppose two. I have two, uh, two stories in my drafts that are fantasy related. I have so much fun writing them, but I don't know if they'll ever find their way to print right now simply because I enjoy so much out there right now that it would be very easy for me to be influenced by the things that I'm watching and enjoying, which some might say isn't too bad, but once you start getting too many parallels, then people start saying, Oh, I mean, Oh, you took that idea from here. You took that idea from there. Uh, This is practically plagiarized from this. And so I tr- I'll try to avoid probably writing or trying to get anything fantasy in print, but I do like in, uh, writing it. I play a lot of Dungeons and Dragons on the side. It's, it's a big love of mine, and I don't know that I would actually do anything uh, published. But one of the things I enjoy about the YA market, as opposed to something more adult, is the fun. Um, I think... It's important to try to keep things light for a younger audience. And um, when you start dealing with like more of an adult oriented audience, sure, there's adults out there that enjoy fun, lighthearted stories, but I don't think that that's really gonna like hit the mark for somebody looking for something more mature, uh, like, a, like something that a George R. R. Martin would write, where it's very violent, very adult themed, 
Um, that's just too much for me. Uh, I, I write to escape reality and try to show the lighter side of life. And I think having this story about a, a, you know, a couple of kids that have some struggles in school, but when they're together, they kind of just enjoy each other's company. And especially with Cody, who can kind of be a little fun and fancy free, uh, regardless of what kind of weight of the world is on his shoulders. So I really enjoy the YA genre. I don't think I'd stray from it. Do you have particular influences in that realm as far as uh, the kind of the kind of stories you like to read? What what authors have been in that wheelhouse for you in terms of of things things that you enjoy to to read as opposed to research? Um. I'm going to be 100% transparent and honest. Me as a reader, I am horrible, horrible reader. Um, probably the fastest book I ever read was To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, I read it in the car ride out to Kansas for a vacation when I was younger and had to read it for school, which is the only reason I actually read it because I probably wouldn't have picked it up otherwise. Uh, same with The Outsiders. I read that very quickly. Um, but I, I'm, a, I'm a horrible reader. I will read the same sentence three times. Um, I will turn the page and then wonder what happened on the previous three pages because my, my mind is a flutter and I, it's very difficult for me to focus on reading books, which is why I structured Bulletproof Origins the way I did. There's a lot of repetition. There's a lot of Hey, this is what happened. Hey, this is what just happened recently. Right. Let's bring this back up. Um, because I can relate to that kind of reader. And it was so frustrating for me to fight and fight and fight and have to constantly go back and figure out what, what I just flipped through. I didn't want my target audience to struggle like that. I wanted them to constantly have a refresher. Hey, just a little reminder, this is happening. And the character, the main character in the book makes that trend, makes that, makes it so much easier because of the type of person he is. Those thoughts constantly bubble up in his head. Sure. So it makes it very organic in that sense. Um, I will say that I did read uh, George R. R. Martin. I got maybe about a third of the way through A Feast, a Feast for Crows and I stopped. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. It, it took me probably four, maybe five years to get to that point. And the only reason I got that far is because I zipped through book two through audiobook. <laughs> uh, it took me a long time. It took me a long time. Now, is that, I, I don't really have a lot of like inspiration from YA books because um, outside of like maybe a Percy Jackson I haven't read a ton. Now, is that uh, a, a, a frustration for you? Uh, because I know some people sit there and go, you know, I just either either I don't find the time or I can't get into a book or I can't. I, it's it's so hard to read. Is that frustrating for you to 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 have that challenge and and not not be able to just pick up a book and just get into it does that does that frustrate you at times because you're not able it, to to follow through on that it does it does it really does and um and that's and this is part of the problem even with an audiobook uh as i'm sure you could attest to because you've mentioned your son an audiobook is no different than having somebody talk to you for an hour right and you zone that out. So you've got to rewind and go back and just keep going back until you recognize some of the words and then replay. Um, it's very frustrating because I feel like I'm missing out on a lot of really good stories. And, you know, I've, I've attempted to read, and this is one of the things I talk about why my book moves so quickly. Cause I, st I stick to the point of the story. I tried reading the wheel of time series by Robert Jordan it was so frustrating for me to go through a paragraph of what the shingles on a house looks or how this, you know, multi quilted road looked, or like, it just took me right out of things. Yeah. I 
put a little bit more credit on my readers. And I feel that most people have gone to a school. Most people can say, I know what a school hallway looks like. If I've got characters running down it, let them use their imagination. There's certain things about a city. People know that there's buildings. I don't need to describe every single building that's whipping by Cody as he's on his hoverboard. I'm trying, when I write, I try to help my younger readers get through the story because there's so many distractions in today's world with video games, cell phones. It's so easy for somebody to say, I, I can't do this. I can't do it. So they close up the book and they'll pick up their phone or they'll get back on and play Fortnite or whatever. Yeah. So I try to stay as I try to stay as, as brief as possible unless it's extremely, extremely important because I get that frustration and I feel like I miss out on a lot of good stories because of it. Now you mentioned gaming and you mentioned playing D and D. Have you had thoughts about doing this kind of a story in a, in a D and D setting where it's more fantasy oriented as opposed to the superhero? Yeah, I actually thought about what if somebody had modern day superpowers, but they were in a fantasy realm, like most fantasy stories. Sure. You have people that can use magic. Um, you have mystical creatures, dragons, etc. So there's certain things that aren't so out of the ordinary, but if you took somebody that was like had modern day superpowers, like a indestructibility or a, you know, super speed or something to those extents and drop them in a fantasy realm. What, like, I often thought about what would the world around that person think and feel and how much more powerful would that person's ability be in a world where nobody has things like that. Right. So I thought about it. I thought about it. I would say that uh, their their reaction to uh, to somebody like that would be similar to King Arthur's court in Unidentified Flying Oddball, <laughs> where it's like, wait, you have you have this you have this flying thing. Wait, a ro- what is a robot? It's uh, I introduced Mrs. Voss to that movie here not too long ago, and it's still it's still charming cute i mean it is what it is for for the time that it was made but uh but yeah it's that it's that fish out of water type of character where you know how 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 does uh the how do the people around him react and i think that's one of the things that uh you look at a movie like man of steel for example and the reaction, you know, grounding it in the real world-ish like Zack Snyder has done. Or you look at Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy and the realism layer that's added onto it, <clears throat> I think sometimes can be a little problematic if you take it too far. Where if you, if you sit there and go, you know, okay, we're going to be so serious about how you know this concept what if somebody could fly what if somebody was indestructible what if somebody was bulletproof and you're probably going to run into that a little bit because you have the people around cody that at various different stages some of them find out or they're going to find out uh his abilities and how do they react and what what their response is going to be uh, is certainly going to factor into some of that. Have you have you mapped that out as far as, well, you know, because we get Callie and Jean's reactions in this book, uh, and are we going to see more from the city at large as an example or, you know, media coverage? How How is that going to play in future stories, do you think? Well, I think it's very important to find some balance. And uh, if you ever want to have an episode where you just talk Man of Steel, I'll totally be there for it. (laughs) I've debated that movie so much over the course of the last seven years since that movie came out. Uh, But I think you have to find balance um, with 
grounding it in reality to a point where the reader can relate to a lot of what's happening, sure. but still having that fantastical world around him where it helps the reader escape without saying that's not how physics work. If you're putting it in the real world that you can't do that. Yeah. I'm no scientist. I'm not going to try to explain, um, you know, anything that gene comes up with <laughs> gravitational thrust containment, literally in the book, you know, <laughs> think about it, use your imagination. It works. It's a hoverboard. That's the premise behind it. But like I try to and explaining why this works in a in a in a book that's like in a realistic kind of setting, people will find out. Yeah. And there's there's hints in the book about other heroes existing in this universe. Um, you know, I have them talking about it. I Callie teases that Cody's got a crush on one of them. Um, Cody's a big comic book reader, and these these elements kind of show that there is a mix of realism with fantasy in this world and people will find out. I mean, if he's going to be hoverboarding through the city, it's not going to be hard for him to be caught on, you know, TV news stations. They have their cameras set up all over the cities. Uh, police have cameras, whether it's on stoplights or wherever he's going to get seen and he's going to get found out about. And from Cody's perspective, he's going to be pretty excited about that. Because that's notoriety. That's people paying attention. And that means that he's slowly becoming the hero that he thinks he needs to be. Um, and obviously, in the book, he does have interactions with some gang members and some thugs. So those rumors will continue to get spread. The um, What is it that they always talk about? Uh, Batman. He's like an urban legend. Urban man, you know. Yeah. So, you know, those those words will start to spread throughout this setting and throughout other people in the book and, you know, whispers behind doors, they'll start to say, Hey, who's this guy? Is he a problem? Do we need to take care of him? What is he really capable of doing? Now, does that, uh, so I'm really excited, really excited to explore that. Does that expand out into interaction with, reporters and police is Cody going to get his own Jim Gordon and Lois Lane. I feel like there's already a small hint of that. Uh, the police officer that was in the scene in the, at the docks is going to kind of be his gateway to the police because that cop was a rookie, totally green. And he acted like a panicking, you know, beat cop. Like, right this is the only thing I know to do. I'm just going to start firing shots in the air to get people to calm down. Um, and they're kind of going to, it'll be his connection to the police department. That'll be like his very low level Jim Gordon. He has like no power, but he's got some access to information. And it's kind of like your, your worst idea of a superhero re interacting with your worst idea of a police officer. <laughs> Both of them mean well, but they're still very new at this, and they'll try to find their way through it eventually. Now, how many how many conversations have you had with your editors where they stop something that you want to do and just sit there and say, this will not work? Have, have those conversations been had? Because you've got... A certain you've got a certain level of expectation here because you're doing the superhero story, and it's an, it's a teenager, and how much of what you want to do is are you getting pushback? This is not a this is not a good idea. Do you do you run into that at all, or are you given pretty much a free hand to develop your story, and they're just coming in and and doing a polish? I've been very fortunate. Uh, my editor, RJ Carter, uh, who's written uh, the Destroyer books, um, he's, he's been very open in giving me the freedom to write the story as I want to write it. Um, I will tell you that there are times where I've been sweating, like literally sweating, waiting for that email, especially that scene that I mentioned earlier that happens in the school. I, when I sent that to him, I there's, there's no way that's staying. There's no way he's going to be okay with that. But 
he's never asked me to completely eliminate something. Right. He has asked me to elaborate, to explain it to him, help him understand. And then maybe we can try to help the readers understand why that's important, why it needs to be there. Uh, the freedom to tell the story the way I want it told is there for me. And RJ has been fantastic in letting me kind of, it kind of guiding me. Um, he's done this before. He's, he's a published author and he's been great at guiding me through the process and helping me understand how to maybe take something that doesn't need to be there, but evolve it into something that can be there. And the, plans for this you said there were six books uh mm-hmm. possibly does that include a shared universe that would focus on other characters or are we going to stick with cody throughout this whole thing um i think i feel there's kind of like a hybrid answer to that uh there's definitely things happening in the background of this universe and i will absolutely be putting things in the books that hints towards the larger world around him because as you as i've put in this book there are other heroes in this universe and so i think it's important to let readers know that there's other things happening because someday a crossover someday a spin-off um maybe one of those characters finds their way in uh later down the line but I feel it's important to make sure that people know that there's definitely other things happening. And I've already got some notes as far as what a spinoff would look like or what maybe a standalone team up might look like, uh, you know, like a, a standalone novel that's like based on the series because it includes Cody and some characters that have been mentioned. Uh, I, I would really love to do it. I don't, I don't know if I'll ever get to a point where I have like my own, you know, expanded universe and like I have full autonomy over this um, new universe, almost like a, like a, what, what Marvel has or DC has or Dark Horse, like they have their own. I don't know that I'd ever get that far, especially in book form, but I love the idea that I have, that I can drop hints of other people, other characters have them doing things in the background. And because Cody is such a, a nerd about this stuff, it, it doesn't take any effort at all for me to have him drop it into a conversation. So the uh, social media presence for you, I know you're on Twitter. Uh, so mm-hmm. people, people want to find out more about uh, this book and whatever's coming next. Is Twitter the best way to find you then? Or is there a website? Um, I am on Twitter. Uh, you'll get a mix of things uh, on Twitter from me. I do talk about my book. Um, I do interact with a lot of people uh, through all sorts of facets of things. Um, it probably wouldn't be the best resource if somebody said, hey, uh, I want to send my kid there and have him interact with the author. That probably wouldn't be the best way to do it. But I would say uh if if i mean if you want to give me a follow on twitter i'm open to conversation about anything there uh my twitter handle is at cb nerd and i would focus uh anybody to go towards facebook i have a a a writer's page an author's page um it's a public page anybody can follow it you can interact with me everything on there is book related there's nothing that strays from the book on my Facebook page. Uh, Stephen J. Mitchell, author. You can find me on Facebook. All right. Let me pull that up here real quick so people can give it a look. So that's what it looks like there. The book, Bulletproof Origins, which is out now. Where can people find this besides uh, Amazon, I guess? Where else? Uh, it's on uh, barnesandnoble.com. Uh, really, any place that books are sold, you can order it through their website. Um, because we're because Critical Blast Publishing is a small independent publisher, you're not going to get these big chains buying it for their bookstores because it there's a lot of business side of things that comes with letting a pub, letting a bookstore purchase maybe 10,000 units to distribute and then six months later saying, Hey, these didn't sell. We want a refund. 
Sure. Yeah. <laughs> that could bankrupt somebody. Yeah. <laughs> so right, right now it's, it's uh, on websites, anywhere books are sold. Like I said, barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com, any online retailers, you'll be able to find it. All right. Stephen J. Mitchell, thank you very much for your time today, sir. Good luck with that. And, and the other books in the series, I'm looking forward to reading the next one. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. There it is, the cover, Bulletproof Origins by Stephen Mitchell. I want to thank him for uh, dropping in and giving us the time to talk about that project. Tomorrow, we don't have a guest, so it'll be kind of a free-for-all, nothing-burger day. We'll see, unless things change between now and 23 hours from now. And in the meantime, uh, coming up later in the week, uh, let's see, today is Wednesday, tomorrow, Thursday night, 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central. We've got a brand new TARDIS sauce with discussion about all things Doctor Who. And then on Friday night, we have a new Deep Space Minds at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central. And uh, then, of course, fr- uh, Saturday morning, Uh, Good morning, Multiverse, uh, with all of the week's headlines and uh, good fun stuff. Good fun stuff. Now, if you want a sticker, we have those available. You can send us a self-addressed stamped envelope like Robert did. Sci-Fi for Me, 1503 Main Street, number 305, Grandview, Missouri, 64030. And we will send you... One of these. They're very durable. High quality. Maybe tomorrow we'll talk about the award we won. That could be a possibility. I think maybe we'll do that. All right, so that's going to do it for us today. Thank you very much, everyone that was in the chat. And if you are listening or watching this in playback, we do invite you to join us live Monday through Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern, noon Central, here on Sci-Fi For Me TV for Live From The Bunker, because, you know, it's in the name. And you can participate in the conversation. If you're uh, if you're consuming this content by playback, you are welcome to leave a comment. And, of course, we do invite everyone to uh, hit the thumbs up and uh, share the links so other people can enjoy this as well. And uh, if you're not subscribed already, it would be nice if you subscribe, uh, even though a lot of our traffic comes from people who haven't subscribed. So that's fine, too. So uh, it's not a it's not an obligation, uh, but we do invite you to do that and uh, be back tomorrow for another installment here live from the bunker. Thanks for being here, everyone. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi for Me Radio. Copyright 2020 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.